Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer. And as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. Have you ever felt completely bogged down by the weight of current events and news? Things like climate change, government corruption, war, and violence seem to be the norm and hard to get away from. I know these things affect me deeply, and that's why I'm always looking for positive news and media about solutions and inspiring change. That's why I'm proud to say that I've partnered with one of my favorite sources for just those things, New Society Publishers are book publishers that focus on putting out great books and positive solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they can go on to change the world for the better. And what's more, their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They actually care deeply, not only about what they publish, but also about how they do business. They believe in the authors they take on and the works they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society publishers have the books you need to help build a better world. In fact, the author that I'm interviewing today, Curtis Stone, and his book The Urban Farmer, are published by them, and if you stay tuned at the end of this interview, I'll tell you how you can be eligible to win your own copy of The Urban Farmer. So stick around for that after the interview. My guest today is none other than Curtis Stone, author of The Urban Farmer. For the better part of a decade, Curtis has been pushing the boundaries of organic gardening in the city and proving through his carefully documented processes that making a profit on small acreage and borrowed land is realistic. He's also the host of a fantastic YouTube channel, which is practically an ongoing master-level course for aspiring urban farmers and small-scale market gardeners. In this interview, Curtis shares his incredible formulas for farming on land that you don't own and how to select plants that will give you a maximum profit in a small space. He also goes into some of the most common mistakes that city farmers make and gives great advice on the first steps you should take to starting a profitable farm in an urban setting. This is another densely packed episode full of actionable information, so grab yourself a notebook and I'll turn things over to Curtis. Hey Curtis, how are you doing today? Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. So before we jump into all the questions here, do you think you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in urban farming? Uh, well, my background is in, in music, actually. I was, for all of my 20s, I was pursuing a career in music composition, and I was 
playing in bands and, and trying to make a career out of being a um, music composer for film. And uh, that kind of got tired of that um, in the sense that I just got tired of living in a city and doing that grind. And I was, I've always been interested in, in like living off the grid and homesteading and kind of everything green. And uh, in 2008, I, as the recession was hitting, I really thought the world was going to shit at that point. <laughs> I was like, ready. I was like, I sort of mapped out a five year plan at that time and wanted to start taking radical steps to working towards self-reliance in some way. And so I left the city of Montreal and moved back out west, which I was originally from. And I went on a bike tour down the West Coast visiting eco-villages and off-grid homesteads and organic farms just to kind of see what people were doing and what was possible. And I got really inspired by things that I saw. I didn't really learn much about that stuff on that tour, but I just more or less learned a lot about myself and and um, how incredibly powerful we can be as human beings once we put our minds to something. And so I was more just inspired on that trip and I came back to uh after that trip came back to bc and just wanted to start taking steps towards farming somehow but i kept running into this problem of how do you farm if you can't afford to buy land and land is really expensive where i live and so i wasn't really in a position where i could even get a mortgage to buy land because an acre of land can cost like a million dollars out here at least in my the part that i live in british columbia and this is the part that i wanted to be in and so I just, I heard about these urban farmers doing some farming on people's yards. I heard about two people in particular and I was inspired by what they were doing and I got to know them. I phoned them and, and, and I reached out and, um, they gave me a lot of good advice and I just kind of went for it and I made a living at it right away. Like in my first year, I was making a living at it. Not, not a great living, but good enough that I could, pay for my living expenses and also have enough startup capital to go into the next season and then continue to grow the business. So I, I did that and I grew the business for about four years. I doubled it every year. So it got really good. It got really big. And then it got a little too big for what I wanted. And I started to scale back and I discovered in that process that kind of doubling down on the things that are working and eliminating the things that aren't was a really good business model. And so that's kind of where we are today. Like I've been doing this for eight years now, but I really figured out how kind of following the Pareto principle, the rule of 80-20 has been sort of my my recipe for success in all of this. Now that's a really remarkable story. And like you were talking about earlier, one of the unique things that you've learned how to do is to farm in an urban setting on borrowed or leased land. Could you go into a little more detail about how you started doing that? Yeah, so I mean, I wanted to farm somewhere. I knew that I I wasn't going to buy land. I was looking at like leasing land or renting land in some way. And a, f a good friend of mine told me that he had in his family had this urban lot downtown that was pretty ideal because it had like had about 6,000 square feet of growing area in it. It was right downtown. And so I, they offered it to me and they said, look, if you act as sort of a caretaker of this land, because they had a rental house on it 
And um, they were obviously, they were paying somebody to come and do the, the lawn maintenance and all that kind of stuff. They said, look, if you do all that, if you take care of this, you can dig up the lawn, you can farm it, you can do whatever. As long as you, you know, like clean up the area around, keep it nice and tidy and grow your vegetables and give us some veggies each week, you can just use it. And so that's pretty much where I started. And I built a home base on that site at the time. I had that home base for four years there. I had a little nursery there, like a 200 square foot nursery. I had a little garage that I rented. I grew microgreens in there in the winter. It was sort of my post-harvest area where I'd wash veggies and stuff. Had a walk-in cooler in there. And I did most of my farming there. And then, But then I just kept getting offered other land. Like people would just walk by and they would see what I was doing and they'd, get, they'd go, wow, this is so cool why don't you come and do my yard? And so for a number of years, I just kept saying yes to everybody, which was a mistake back then. I mean, it was great that I did it. And it was great that I went through that experience of trying to grow the business. But I got to a point where I just had too many plots of land all over the city. They were really spread out. And so that wasn't very efficient for managing a business day in and day out. But that's that's essentially how I started was just by this one place. And then by making it look really good, People just kept walking by and saying, wow, what a great idea. So I did try knocking on doors to finding land when I first started, but that never yielded anything because, you know, you knock on somebody's door and you're like, hi, I'm Curtis. They're like, oh, God, it's a Jehovah's Witness. And then they, <laughs> they immediately don't really want to talk to you. So um, that never that, that never led to anything. And this is the moral of the story here is and I always tell people is like, if you want to find land and farm in the way that I am, just start in some place. Just start with one place somewhere and you'll get, you'll garner a lot of interest from the community just by doing it and making it look good. Yeah, I really love that story, especially because you talk about unexpected ways to farm different types of land within an urban setting. Now, for those of my listeners who would like to try and do the same, mm -hmm. could you give us some advice on how you go about selecting ideal land in these settings? Especially because you said before that you scaled back your operation quite a bit from having larger acreage in the beginning. So I'm guessing that you have a pretty detailed list of criteria on how to select land that's ideal for market gardening. Yeah, so are, are we talking about urban land? Yeah, let's stick just with urban land. Okay, so if we're talking about urban land, there's sort of like a list of criteria I go through. First of all, um, who owns the land and are they a person that you like? That's number one. If it's a person that's uh, that you don't think you can deal with on a regular basis, don't farm the land. It's not worth it. Relationships are paramount to all of this. You have to have good relationships. You have to find people that you want to work with and that people people that want to work with you and really believe in what you're doing. That's number one. Number two would be the logistics of the site, like as far as location, is it close to where you want to be? Like if you're farming in a multi-locational context like I am, you want your plots of land to be relatively close to one another. If, if, if you have to crisscross a big city for, to go one plot to the other, you will waste a lot of time in transit. And that's really important. And so my, my farm is really consolidated and consolidated and consolidated over the years. And I'm to the point now where I'm, I'm, going to be buying my neighbor's houses and eventually in maybe five years or so I'll probably own all of my farm in one place and then just have a bunch of rental houses on it but but it starts where you you know you're taking not quite ideal places but then you, over time you'll meet more people and find more ideal places but location is really important needless to say uh, number three is probably something like 
is that soil contaminated? If it's contaminated, I don't use it at all. Like if, if somebody says, hey, um, there was a gas station on this site a number of years ago, it's okay, forget about it. I won't even, won't even bother. Um, if there was some like some sort of chemicals dumped there, if there's like potential heavy metals in the soil, I just won't use it at all. And that's not to say that you can't because certainly anybody listening to this who's from a bigger city in the US or Canada or even worldwide – you, you know, sometimes you are going to farm on sites that have contamination and, and you, you can do that. You can build up new organic matter and bring in a whole new bunch of soil on it. It's just costly. So that for me, it's just there's other lots that could be more promising. So if something's contaminated, I won't even bother using it. Um, something like number four would be, are there any major shade structures around that site? Like, if you're in a if you're in a high density urban area, are there any neighboring buildings that are going to cause a lot of uh, light loss during the day? You know, anything on the south, if you're in the northern hemisphere, isn't good. Uh, if you're in the southern hemisphere, anything on the north, um, you know, even even if you're in the suburban or like peri-urban areas, I'm in more of a suburban city, and the biggest concern for me is. Trees, like other trees, are there big deciduous or evergreen trees around that are going to cause a lot of shade? That's that's really important there. Um, something like number five is like access to water. Do you have, do, you know, where's the, where's the water coming from? Is it a, a tap on? Is it a faucet on the side of the house? Is it close by? Is it, is it accessible? That's really important. Um, maybe a number six would be access. Like, how do you get in and out of that site? Um, you know, is it really nebulous to get in there? Because if you're going to be coming into this site on a daily basis or a few times a week, you need to have good access. Um, I'm kind of just going down a random list. I don't know how many I'll arrive at. But number seven, I would say something like, what are the neighbors like? What's the neighborhood that that piece of land is in? Are the... Um, are the people around you, do you feel like there's a, a good level of trust in that neighborhood and that you feel safe doing that? Um, you know, maybe a number eight would be, is there fencing? Or do you need fencing? Some, some plots you don't need fencing on. Most you do. And so that's, that's a, that can be a pretty big concern. Like if you don't have any fence on there, well, then anybody can walk through there, especially if it's a corner lot, then people are going to cut through and, and, and some people just won't respect your, your produce. They'll just walk over it. And, uh, so fencing is, is pretty important. Um, I would say let's leave it at that because I could probably keep going, but those are, those would be the main eight that I would really look at before I, I considered any taking on a plot. Yeah, that's a really excellent list, and I also really agree with the order that you put them in. Now, one of the keys that you've promoted to reach profitable market gardening is to select high market value crops and focus on those. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through the way that you evaluate which crops will give you the highest return and which only seem good on the surface? Yeah, so so ba basically, I've narrowed it down to five characteristics. There There could be more, like if you were to look at other considerations when you look at a vegetable, but I've narrowed it down to five that are, if you can meet three out of five or four to five or, or better, better yet, five out of five of these characteristics, you can, you can have a profitable crop. So number one is pop is popularity. It's the crop's got to be popular and in demand. Number two is days to maturity. How many days does that crop take to get to harvest? I'm, I'm targeting generally something that's 60 days or less. 
Number three is yield per, per linear foot in bed. So I want to get uh, at least half a pound per foot in my 30-inch beds. Uh, number four is price per pound. So I want to get something that is like $4 a pound or higher. And then number five is seasonality. So how long and how much of the season can I grow that crop? Like winter squash, you can you plant it in May. You don't harvest it until August. Whereas leafy greens and baby root vegetables, like a lot of the crops that I grow, I can plant and harvest them for eight months of the year. So basically, with those five criteria, that is my sort of the the lens that I put everything through. It's sort of a filter. And what I tell farmers is that the smaller your farm, the more of those criteria you want to meet. So if you want to farm and make money and make a living off, say, a quarter acre of land, you need to pick crops that are going to score five out of five of that criteria. Whereas if you are on, say, an acre of land, you could probably go down to crops that are low as two out of five. You know, you might have you have a, a garden variety there um, because generally on a larger farm, you need to have more diversity to move that product unless you've got some really sweet market stream where you're very specialized and somebody's buying, you know, hundreds or thousands of pounds of salad, salad greens from you a week. But that's unlikely for most market growers. Generally, we're targeting direct consumer market streams. So, that's that's basically what I tell most farmers. You know, a, lo a lot of urban farmers who come into this come from permaculture. And that's that's exactly where I came from. And we come in all wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and we want to grow all kinds of cool stuff for all kinds of various reasons. But it's just not practical. And, you know, again, at the end of the day, you got to pay bills. So, we all might have some kind of ideals about not wanting to be on the grid and not wanting to pay bills, but the reality is you do, especially if you have children or you have a family to support, you have to pay bills. So, unfortunately, the world works in dollars and cents. So, if your farm isn't making money, you're going to, you're not going to last very long. And that's just the hard truth that I've seen played out many times with not only myself, but, but dozens of farmers that I've consulted for around North America. Fantastic. Now, another often overlooked aspect to profitable urban farming is setting up economical infrastructure for starting, maintaining, and processing your plants for market. Mm -hmm. What have been some of the most essential tools and equipment that have made your job a lot easier and more efficient? Okay, so I, I guess you're referring to like the post-harvest um, stuff. So, I mean, really... You need to have a walk-in cooler, at least one walk-in cooler if you're going to run a commercial farm. Like, don't even consider trying to do it without. Some people think they can get away with using refurbished home refrigerators. You can't. It's just, trust me on this one, it doesn't work. I've seen people try it over and over again and they just suffer. So, you need to have a walk-in cooler because you can throw big totes of product in there right off the field and you need to cool product when it's harvested to get the field heat off it otherwise it starts to degrade that 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 makes it so it, it, so you can market that product for a few three or four days or potentially a week after it was harvested if your product is going to spoil the next day then your window of selling it is one day so you you can't really far like reasonably economically farm without proper cold storage so that's number one things like washing infrastructure you know we've got quite a bit 
uh, of really specialized and do-it-yourself stuff on our farm. I mean, if people go to my YouTube channel, if they just search Urban Farmer Curtis Stone, they'll they'll see a lot of the stuff. You can just use the search on my channel and put in like post-harvest and you'll get all kinds of stuff. But um, one that's really important for us is a washing table. So, it's basically just um, a three foot by eight foot wide table that has a galvanized steel mesh on it. But it also has a pool liner underneath that deflects the water when we wash into a, a bin that has a pump and we pump that water off the property. So, that's like sort of our wastewater really. But we actually use it to irrigate some of our perennial crops around on the, on the farm. But so we wash like our root veggies on there. Um, any kind of wet work is done on that table. That table is very important. It's sort of the centerpiece in our whole post-harvest area. And then we've got like all of our infrastructure for washing greens. And greens is like the majority of what we produce on our farm. It's probably like 80% of what we produce. And then we've got a, a, a greens washing machine called a bubbler. It's basically like a big jacuzzi. You put greens in it and then it 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 um it makes air bubbles and it shakes all the dirt and bugs and stuff off the greens and then from there they go into a spinner which is a big a big salad spinner i have two of them they're just modified washing machines that have big bins in them that um spin and this it just spins it just like you you would any home salad spinner but on a commercial scale and then our greens go on to another screen after that with fans on it that's called a, a, a greens dryer and that just gets any standing water off the greens makes them a little bit drier so that they pack better and that they they last longer on the shelf and um, that's the majority of like our washing infrastructure. I mean, we have infrastructure for packing product. You know, we've got scales and benches and bags and all that kind of stuff. But that's that's mostly what's in our, our post-harvest area. Yeah, that's really important. And it's something that people often overlook, which is just how much effort and work goes into making your products presentable enough to actually sell well at market. It's funny because you're you're dead on. It's the number one thing that I find people overlook and they think they can kind of wait till the end to do that stuff and then they suffer the classic burnout is that summer comes on and they got lots of product coming off the field and they don't have a place to put it or, or a proper system in place to wash it and process it and pack it and store it. And I'm my the number one thing I tell all of my consulting clients or students is that if you're going to take some time to prepare your farm, get your land in production or get your land getting getting it prepared quickly like, you know, rototill it, tarp it or whatever you're going to do and then start working on your post-harvest infrastructure. Like your post-harvest infrastructure should be finished well before you have crops coming off the field. Yeah, for sure. That's super important. Now, because you select crops that mature and can be harvested quickly – many of which even offer multiple cuttings and harvests before replanting, you've been able to put in a system of high rotation beds and manage the organization and yields for better consistency. Yes. Can you break down that system for us and give an example of how it works through a growing season? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I mean, you know a bit about my book. You're, you're using my, my terminology, which is great. So high rotation essentially means an area that is in high rotation. So everything on our farm is a, is a standardized 30-inch bed. The length varies a little bit, but for the most part, we have 50-foot beds. So 30 inches wide by 50 feet long. 
And in order to make our farm more profitable on such a small piece of land, like we, we did a hundred, just over a hundred thousand dollars on our third of an acre last year. We did that because everything on my farm is high rotation, meaning that every single bed on the farm will be planted on average at least four times. So all in the springtime, I might have a bed that's spinach. So it's planted uh, kind of 45 to 60 days. Uh, pass and we have harvested it once or twice. So with greens, it's mostly we, at the very least, we get two cuts. So we get one cut and then it'll grow back in like 10 to two weeks, depend, seven to two weeks, depending on the time of season, get it, get another cut and then we'll turn it under or we'll pull it out, amend the soil with compost or, or some sort of organic fertilizer and then replant that bed to something else. So then maybe it'll go to radishes. So then those radishes are out in 30 days. We completely crop it out and then we'll turn it over and plant something else. Maybe at that point it'll go to lettuce. Then it'll be lettuce for say 75 days, including getting two or three cuts off it. And then we'll um, pull that out, amend the soil again with some organic nutrients and then plant it again. Maybe at this point it'll go to fall carrots and then those carrots will be in the ground till October, harvest them. So that, that's how one bed, that's sort of the timeline of one bed might look like. So we're basically repeating that over, you know, hundreds of times in a season. So we have on our farm, we have 70, 50 foot beds on our farm. And so when I wrote my book, I basically give people an economic benchmark in that if you do high rotation planting and you've got uh, a 25 or 50 foot beds on a 50 foot bed you should be able to make on average $1,600 per bed per season so that's an average growing season I'm in North America I'm in Canada and I have a slightly shorter season than some people in the U.S. would so if you add that up if so for our farm 70 beds all high rotation at $1,600 that comes to $112,000. So that's that's the economic potential of our farm. It doesn't mean you're going to make that, but that's the potential. And so that's that's the basis of 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 what that all means is that we're continuously rotating our beds. Now, one thing to keep in mind is most of the crops I grow are what we call low feeders. Like lettuce, radishes, spinach, arugula, mustard greens, turnips, um, those crops are low feeders, meaning they don't actually draw that much from the soil. So, I mean, I'm, I'm adding organic matter to my soil every time, every, every crop, but I'm putting more in than I'm taking out. And that's important because if you're taking out more than you're putting in, then it's, a, then it's diminishing returns and your soil is only going to get worse. But in organic farming, which I'm not a certified organic farmer, but, but I do follow, all practices re- regarding farming organically. Most of my inputs that I use are organic or certified organic at least. And um, the, the idea is that you have to maintain the biology of your soil, right? You, you know, an organic farm is dependent on biological processes within the soil structure to deliver a yield from your crops. Whereas in conventional farming, it's not biology. It's basically just chemical or petrochemical inputs. So we need to maintain that biology and we do that by making our soil better continuously. I'm actually really glad you got into that because that was going to be my next question. Because obviously with so many high rotation beds, soil fertility must be paramount. And while I know you said that some of your main cash crops are plants that don't require a whole lot from the soil, but you also have others like tomatoes that do. 
And so mm-hmm. I'm curious as to, other than compost, can you talk to us a little bit about how you manage soil health and ways that help you to achieve such high yields and turnover? So basically, it's 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 not really anything. It's certainly not, nothing new. I, I, I don't think I've really created any new content as far as soil fertility. Um, at the beginning of the season, we put one to two inches of, of really good finished compost into all of our beds. And so that gets doesn't get rototilled in. We actually, for the most part, do a very shallow till. We don't rototill our beds. We do sometimes. Um, sometimes it's necessary, but we just do it at the beginning of the season. We might be putting uh, a cover crop like a fall rye mixed with peas in there and we'll rototill it in that context and then shape the beds. And then from there on throughout the season, it's a very shallow cultivation we're doing between each crop. And that's part of the soil fertility there too. But it's a continuous adding of organic matter in the top layer of the soil profile that continuously keeps building up that loam. So our, our basic protocol is, so at the beginning of the season, we put in a thick layer of compost on each bed. We use a tool called a tilther that basically just tills that into the top inch of the soil. So it doesn't really till it in. It more just mixes it in with the top layer of soil. And then um, we get a nice clean seed bed that we can plant to, into from there. And then, be, and then you know, of course, we, we fork the beds. So before we actually put in that compost, the beds get forked with a, a, a digging fork. We don't use a broad fork. We just use a, a digging fork. They get about 10 inches of, of, of forking down below to open up the soil, aerate the soil. Then we've got the compost that goes on. Then we're ready to plant. From there, throughout the season, we're pulling out a crop we're amending the soil again and planting again. But what we're doing is we're not using compost at this time, mostly because of logistics. Because to use, to, to, to put buckets and buckets and buckets of compost on a bed each time is time consuming and quite labor intensive. So through our mid-season rotations, we switch to a more compact fertilizer, which is, it is compost essentially, but we're using a composted certified organic turkey manure. And that goes um, we sprinkle that on each bed after each crop and then we um, we fork the bed just like we did at the beginning and then we use the tilther to do that little shallow cultivation of that fertilizer and then we replant. So that, that's basically it. I mean, it, uh, something else that's slightly nuanced but is, is somewhat relevant to the discussion is that is our management of our weeds. So we, we use a technique called stale seed bedding. And the basic idea is there that we are encouraging weed growth as early as we can. And then we're eliminating that by putting tarps on the soil and smothering the weeds out. Or we're using a flame weeder tool that we walk right along the, the surface of the soil that's boiling those little germinating weed seeds. And we're managing from there. And then because we're not really rototilling throughout the season, we're not bringing up new weed seeds and we're not putting down any weed seeds either. So we're, we're kind of disrupting that whole weed cycle. And we're essentially trying to tackle the weeds every, even before they become a problem so that we're continuously reducing our weed pressure over time. Yeah, that's really important. Um, now, I know one of the advantages that you've listed to growing mm-hmm. crops in an urban environment is the easier access to the market. Now, what have been some of your most reliable ways of selling your produce and how can other urban farmers tap into those markets for themselves? 
Well, I mean, it really is about direct consumer market streams. At least that's how it was when I started. My farm is is a lot different now even than when I wrote my book because my book is about almost three years old now from when when it was written. And uh, so, I really encourage farmers when they're starting to get into direct consumer market streams like farmers. So, direct consumer means direct to the consumer. So, there's no middleman. So, farmers markets, community supported agriculture like veggie box programs and uh, selling to like restaurants. So, that's that's how I started but it's not quite how it is today. What was the, what was the first part of the question? Oh, right. Advantages to be in the city. So, the the, the, the big advantage that urban farmers have over rural farmers is that they're just simply in the marketplace. Like we live in the city, the farms are in the city and people see them. So, that has a huge benefit in just that insofar as that people walk by and they see the farm and they get interested in the farm and they become your customers. So, it's 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 really that simple and that's that's by far the biggest advantage that that we have. Um, you know, when you're selling outside of the city, you've got to commute into the city to not only deliver product, but also build relationships. And it's the building of relationships that's the thing that most people don't really factor in when they're thinking about starting a business. But just like I said at the beginning, when we were talking about land and, and finding land, relationships are the most important part. Because if you don't, if you, th- those relationships are, are the, are paramount to everything you do going forward because without good relationships, you don't have continuous customers or you don't have um, reoccurring customers, I should say. And so, you need to have those and, you know, farming is becoming, it can be competitive. It's certainly very competitive where I live. I don't encourage anybody to come to Kelowna to start a market garden. It's extremely competitive here. There's so many organic growers here. Um, so, it, you know, it's good to be in a marketplace that is a little bit less saturated for sure. But, you know, if you have a niche, you can pretty much go anywhere. If, you, if you're, if you're a good, if you're a really good people person and you're good at building relationships, you can succeed anywhere. But that's not often where many farmers are. But certainly, the biggest advantage we have in the city is the fact that people see our farm and we're accessible and we're, you know, people get that connection of, to where their food comes from. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's another one of those aspects that, like you said, a lot of people overlook, mm-hmm. especially in that urban setting. Relationship building is going to be absolutely key to selling directly to your customers and not missing out on some profits that would otherwise be taken by the middlemen. Yeah, so there certainly is disadvantages. I mean, one is that you've got well, you've got to deal with the city. You've got to deal with bureaucracy, or um, you know, zoning issues. If you're in the U.S., HOAs, which are uh, we're so lucky we don't have those in Canada. Those are so draconian. Um, I've been able to do a lot of what, what I've been able to do because we don't have HOAs and we actually have a very um, progressive city that really supports entrepreneurialism. So, my city has been very supportive of – not supportive because they, they've never given me anything. Actually, they've given me some awards but they've never given me money. I've never asked for money either but they've just – they've kind of got out of the way and let me kind of do my thing. Um, but that can certainly be a big barrier if you're farming in the city. Um, 
Another is if you're multi-locational, you've got logistics of managing that. So you have to run around from place to place opposed to just having one single site, which would certainly make it easier. And eventually I might move on to a single site or I'm actually trying to do it by by buying my neighbor's homes and consolidating my farm into one place. Um, you know, you've got things like vandalism or theft, which has actually never been an issue for us, but they they can be in certain places for certain people. We we've been really fortunate that that's you know nobody's ever vandalized or stolen anything from my garden. At least to my knowledge. Having said that, if somebody were to go in and take a few radishes, I probably wouldn't even notice. Um, I would say those are the main things. I mean, another one that is an advantage and a disadvantage is the heat island effect. So I mean, it's a great advantage on the shoulder season when you want to get crops in the ground earlier and you know i've got 45 more frost free days in downtown Kelowna than people who are just outside the city do because the heat the city has a heat island effect it's called where it's it's a thermal mass that absorbs heat and it holds heat so the cities are you know on average five degrees warmer than they are outside so that's an advantage and a disadvantage it's a disadvantage in the summer because it is significantly hotter in the city than it is outside so for example the last few weeks, it's been, we've, we got up to 107 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius downtown and it was 32 degrees or under 100, like 92 or something like that outside the city. So it can work both ways. In the summer, it's certainly a disadvantage. So those, those would be the main ones I think of right off the top of my head. Yeah, I could definitely see how those would get in the way, but it sounds like you've got a good system of dealing with them or at least mitigating them for your circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to get back to one of the things that you talked about right at the beginning of this podcast. And that's that you've been able to pretty much double your revenue for each successive year since the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of the key things that you've done in order to achieve that. Yes. Yeah. So it, that that is all about doubling down on the 80-20. So the 80-20, for those of you who don't know, the Pareto Principle is I won't explain the history of the Pareto Principle, though if you're interested looking it up, you should look it up because it is very interesting. I, I find it's actually a universal principle everywhere in the world. But basically looking at what delivers the most value for the least return for the least amount of input. So many people will say 20% of your customers are 80% of your business. 20% of your products will be 80% of your revenue. So on and so forth. And so what I've done is I've essentially applied the 80-20 to everything on my farm from products to seed varieties to customers to methodology in the field, everything. A anything that was delivering, say, 20% for 80% input, we got rid of. And so, we only – I've only keep the things that are meeting that 80-20 criteria. And so, the one thing – like – in the, in the first number of years, it was things like, okay, let's just like refine our crop selection. Let's make our crop selection bigger, better. So m the biggest, the biggest, um, milestone I had there was from my fourth year to my fifth year in farming. My fourth year, I had eight people working on the operation. We had two and a half acres and I grew about 90 different types of crops and like including varieties and all that kinds of stuff. And is very diversified, but I discovered in that year that there was 10 crops that were literally bringing in 
80% of the revenue over the farm. So, I radically restructured my operation that year. I dropped 80 of those crops. I pretty much went with 10. And I made more money that year, worked less, and had a way better quality of life. So, ever since then, the things that I've doubled down on, I mean, I've continuously refined what I'm growing and what I'm not growing. But uh, the thing that really made a considerable effort in the later years was doubling down on the types of customers that I wanted. So, was basically identifying out of all the customers I had. So, let's say, for example, I would have, say, 20 different restaurants I was selling to. I had a CSA box program and I had a farmer's market every Saturday. I basically looked at that, uh, all those revenue streams. So, those are three revenue streams there. And I said, okay, of the restaurants, let's eliminate the customers that are really high maintenance and are low volume. So, if, if, they're, if it's a chef and they take up a lot of my time, they don't pay their bills on time and they don't even order that much stuff, they're gone. Like, just forget about it, not even engaging them anymore. Um, with the other market streams in recent years, like last year, we dropped our farmer's market. Three years before that, I dropped my CSA. And then I pretty much specialized in restaurants. And then I started selling more to food aggregators, like food hubs. They basically buy product from local farmers and then redistribute it in a box program. And then I started selling to grocery stores. And so that that was pretty much it there was continuously finding the gravy like finding the cream like what's what's the best return for the least amount of work and I always find you know looking at sort of the customer I call it the customer spectrum it's like you've got the, I break it down to two categories how how much maintenance they require and how much volume they buy so a customer that is Low maintenance and high volume, meaning that they're easy to deal with and they buy a lot of product, that is like your all-star number one customer. Customers in the middle might be high maintenance, but they, they buy high volume, so you'll tolerate them because they're, they're, you know, at the end of the day, they might spend $1,000 a week. They're worth your time, even though they might send you 10 or 20 text messages a week, they're still worth it. And then on the, on the, on the, the cutoff point, on the other end, you've got low volume and, and high maintenance customers. So they don't buy a lot, but they're high maintenance to deal with. Cut those ones out immediately and then decide where you want to draw the line on the others. Even recently, in recent years for us, I've cut out a lot of customers that were high maintenance and high volume because to me, life is short and I've been in business long enough now that we've, we're, we've got sort of an incumbent status where we are with our farm that nobody's really going to come in and outcompete us, at least without us getting a really good idea of what was happening so that I'm just not really so worried about it. To me, it's more about quality of life. Like, sure, it's great to make a lot of money on the farm, but at the end of the day, I want to have time to spend with my daughter and my or my family, and I want to enjoy what I'm doing. So, if, if there's a customer that I don't enjoy dealing with, I just don't engage them anymore. That's really fantastic advice. And I know even for myself and also for many of the people that I've interviewed on this podcast, that that 80-20 principle has been absolutely key for them to actually turn a profit in their business Absolutely. and get away from an enterprise that's really just letting them get by. So what would be some advice that you would give to someone who wanted to get started farming in the city for themselves? What would be some of the first steps that you would advise them to take? Well, I would say right off the bat, this is something I don't think I've ever said in an interview, is 
do you really need to farm in the city for one? Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of people are come to urban agriculture because it's hip, like it's cool to farm in the city. And it certainly is. And it's certainly, it's a, it is, there is a lot to be said about the quality of life and getting to know people in your community and neighborhood. That's really awesome. But if you have an opportunity to farm slightly outside of the city and you've got more of an ideal situation as far as logistics and land go, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think, uh, you know, a, a half hour commute into a town isn't really that big of a deal. Whereas, you know, a couple hours, certainly that's something else. But, you know, a half hour isn't so bad. You can almost be farming in the city in that same context. Um, so farming, if you're going to farm in the city, you want to start, you want, you, you want to really figure out an ideal logistical land base. Um, if you, if you're too spread out, then it's going to cause, it's going to cause a lot of inefficiencies and, and wasted time in transit. So that's really key. Another thing is you have to utilize mini monocultures. A lot of people who come into this from permaculture, they think that everything has to be like a forest garden or like this ultimate biodiverse little garden and it doesn't because in a city there's actually a lot of biodiversity you got trees you got neighbors gardens you got all things around you all kinds of things around you that a 500 square foot plot of spinach isn't a monoculture it's it's a mini monoculture within a greater biodiversity so for this for the sake of making things logistical and simple it's way easier to have little specialized monocultures and you'll rotate them throughout the season but that's really important um a lot of Urban farmers I see too, they, they, they get into it because they, it's like a social justice thing. And I think that's, that's, that's fine as far as intent, but it doesn't really deliver on the, on the end that if that's your, if that's your mission and at the end of the day, you don't have a business, then you're not even going to succeed at the social justice. So you need to make your, a business, a business. And then all those, all those other things that you want to do, whether they be good things in the community, environmental things, or, uh, you know, economic sustainability and so on and so forth, you have to make a sustainable business first. Cause if you don't, you won't last and you won't achieve those other goals. So I'd say those would be the main ones. And uh, I mean, I guess lastly, get the right equipment. I see some urban farmers, I'm not kidding you, that have been farming for like five years and they're still sowing seeds with their fingertips. That's insane. Get the right equipment, get a walk-in cooler, get a, get a good post-harvest station, get the right tools, make sure you've got a cedar, make sure you've got good infrastructure to start a nursery because you can kill so much time with, without that stuff. And th these tools have been around for a long time. There's really nothing new. Uh, you know, of course, there's lots of new stuff out there that's, that is absolutely game changing. But start with, you need to have a cedar, you know, ha start with some of the basic infrastructure and then work up to the other things as you get some capital cushion from your operation. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Uh, like you said, cutting out all of these things that people aren't taught in maybe their permaculture design courses or general gardening courses, but are essential to actually making it a business. I'm really glad you touched on those. Yeah. Now, I personally am just such a huge fan of your book, your YouTube channel, and even the courses that you offer. 
How can people get in touch with you and learn more about urban farming and market gardening? The, the, the basic hub to, to find out about anything I'm doing is just go to my website, theurbanfarmer.co. Um, from there, you can find info about my online course. You can get my book from there. That links to my YouTube channel. Um, you can email me through my website. You know, I do consulting, though I don't, I'm not doing any this summer. I've kind of taken a little hiatus until the fall. Um, but you can basically find most of my stuff just by going to my website there. Excellent. And I'll be sure to post uh, notes in the show notes below the podcast so that everybody can get to those real easily. And for anybody interested too, I'm going to be giving away a hard copy of your book. So stick around after the episode and I'll tell them how to do that. Good stuff. Curtis, thank you for being so generous with your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I know we had quite a bit of runaround making this interview happen, uh, but thanks for sticking with it. And it's been a ton of value for both me and my listeners. Awesome. Good stuff. I'm glad we finally made it happen. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time and I'll catch up with you soon. All right. My pleasure. So if you were as inspired as I was listening to Curtis Stone talk about the wealth of information in his book, then here's your chance to win your very own copy of The Urban Farmer. In order to be entered, all you need to do is leave a review of the Abundant Edge podcast on iTunes and send a screenshot of your review to info at AbundantEdge.com. From there, I'll pick my favorite and send you a brand shiny new hard copy of The Urban Farmer. Thanks so much to last week's winner, Dustin Gutwine, for a beautifully written and generous review. For those of you awesome people who've already left a review on iTunes, you can still win by sharing this podcast episode on Facebook. Just tag the Abundant Edge in your post and send your screenshot by email for your chance to win. As soon as you're selected, the lovely people at New Society Publishers will send you your hard copy if you live in the U.S. or Canada. Or if you live outside those two countries, they'll send you a digital copy straight to your email. So submit your entry to win today to info at AbundantEdge.com. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast, and I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, we've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the Intro to Permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward. Man. Yeah, it's life-changing. Sure. But like I said, what I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our intro to permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's, that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, 
outdoor kitchens and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition, so this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. Because, I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks, but this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So, hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to atilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at 
All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.